Welcome to episode 90 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. If the sky comes falling down for you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on, man? This is a great day because we got question cast. We do have some question cast. Before we get into that, I would be remiss... If I did not acknowledge that we are recording on Memorial Day. So if you are one of our listeners and you have served in the armed forces on behalf of the United States of America, thank you for your service. Thank you so much. So what do we got on the docket today, Jesse? Well, we got some great questions and I don't know if we're going to have some great answers, but we're going to have some good discussion. We're going to try. Are you ready to get after it? Let's do it. All right. Here's the first voicemail. Hi, guys. Uh, This is Randy in Houston. Uh, I wanted to say something, kind of comment, but ask a question. Um, By the way, I also enjoyed your recent podcast on adoption. Spot on. Um, Ligon Duncan, who you probably know, um, famous president of seminary, etc. He made a comment in his covenant theology lectures, which I'm going through now, that I thought was interesting. Now, it is very significant that right now on the throne of the universe, human flesh sits in the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, who is forever fully God and fully man. The dust of the earth sits on the throne of glory. This thing just kind of rattled me. Um, and then when I was looking at the confession, chapter 8, um, section, paragraph 3, it more or less says the same thing. Uh, excuse me, 2. It more or less says the same thing. So I'd be interested if you have the time to sort of say, what are your thoughts about the idea that Jesus is in heaven physical form um that kind of not sure that sits in my brain quite right but i think it's scriptural so interested in your comments love your work thanks talk to you later i am super thankful that randy brought this up because this is something i've been thinking about i would say over like the last couple years like way more intensely so this for me is like one of the greatest realities in all of the universe because we know that god is spirit And yet God in his infinite creativity in this unbounded, uncharted, unfathomable brilliance creates the physical world. And he's, he's satisfied in that. He's glad in it. And then through the Pactum Salutis, we have the second person of the Trinity, the son becoming enfleshed, like incarnation, literally God with meat. And he forever identifies with us in that way. I mean, it's crazy, right? I mean, this, this is an incredible truth. It is. And, and I love how uh, Randy said that, that this, this doesn't fit in his mind or this doesn't sit in his mind. And w- what I love towards the end, and this, this is exactly the right approach that we have to have to a question like this, um, is he said something along the lines of, I'm not sure it, f- I'm not sure it works, but I think it's biblical. Right. And, and, and so often when we're dealing about big questions in terms of the metaphysics of God, um, we have to acknowledge that our puny little meat brains can't get our heads around it. And so we don't want to say, well, therefore we can affirm contradictions or incoherencies because that's not true. But we have to recognize that we, it's almost like the truth of the Trinity and the truth of the incarnation is too coherent for our fallible, limited minds to even comprehend. So I want to just huge affirmation to Randy for thinking that way and for being willing to say, I think this is biblical, even though my instinct and my my capacities are telling me it can't be so. 
That's I just a good think way to summarize it. The right hum- uh, humble way to approach a question like this. Right on. This is crazy truth. And yet it's so fundamental because this is like the beauty of the hypostatic union that God would condescend to us, become like us and not in a temporary way, but forever identify with us. So one of the things that's just floors me is when we say kind of casually that when one of our loved ones dies and they know the Lord and the Lord knows them, that they go and see God or they're with God or in right. God's presence. When we talk about seeing God, like that beatific vision, that's in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the only way we'll actually be able to experience yeah. that. So what a wonderful thing that God would be so loving and compassionate to us that he would take on flesh so he would forever in some way be just like us. He really is the first fruits. So the way I've been kind of contemplating this is it's better for me, at least, to think about Jesus as, as almost like a loved one who's just not in the same geography as me. Yeah. Like it's, it's no less a real truth that Jesus is with the Father in a spiritual realm, in a physical body, with eyes, blood vessels, fingernails, actually performing a current ministry. And that for me has been really transforming in the way that I understand his work in my life right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, from a from a technical level, I just want to read from a couple uh, historical church documents. Um, this one is something you may have heard of. It's called the Chalcedonian definition. So the, the Chalcedonian definition is sort of the, the gold standard um, historical definition of the doctrine of the hypostatic union. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but it says down um, probably about halfway through the, the part that most people read. It says, um, one and the same Christ. Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, meaning not just that the natures are unchangeable, but the union of the two natures is unchangeable, indivisibly and inseparably. So I think a lot of times we think about the um, incarnation as though, you know, Christ kind of takes a body and then when he's done with it, he puts it, he puts it away. Right. Um, it, like it's a, like a shirt that once he's done wearing the shirt, the, you know, the, or like a tux at a wedding. Once you're done with the tux, you bring it back to the rental place and you never see it again. Um, but the, the incarnation is not like that. So if we want to get real technical, we could say that it would be possible metaphysically for the son to put away his human nature. Um, but covenantally, the son has promised never to do so. And the right. reason for that is not, um, and th- this gets into, you know, just like you said, he's a real human who's ministering in the presence of the Lord. And it's an ongoing ministry, right? Hebrews says he, he always lives to make intercession. Well, that intercession cannot take place unless Christ is inseparably a union of two natures. Exactly. Um, and then the Westminster Larger Catechism um, just kind of confirms that. It says, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? This is question 36. Answer, the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. So all throughout church history, there have been debates here and there about exactly exactly what the nature of the incarnation is. Is it possible? Some people would say it's not even possible for the son to put away his human nature anymore. Um, most people would say that it would be possible on sort of an ontological level, but not 
on a covenantal level, level, as we said, and that's that's exactly where the Westminster um, standards and the Chalcedonian definition goes. Is this is an ongoing ministry of the Son on our behalf, and so it requires an ongoing ministry in our nature. Um, whereas sometimes you have kind of an anemic understanding of the atonement that that sort of neglects that ongoing intercessory ministry, that high priesthood. Um, it, it's like they they don't even read the book of Hebrews, and everything stops at Calvary and the resurrection. And so Christ kind of ascends back into heaven, and and his work as our Savior is done at that point, where it's right. not needed anymore. So in those systems, a lot of times the the body of Christ can be kind of discarded, or the human nature of Christ can be discarded because it's no longer necessary. It's easy to forget that there is an ongoing ministry of Jesus and that he's present in that ministry in both a physical and a spiritual sense. That's a truth that often gets lost because we do focus so much on the cross and the yeah. resurrection, and rightfully so. But how it transforms us now is in part due because of his ongoing work on our behalf. Yeah. And he's just not present with us in the same way. So let me, as like kind of a springboard to this question from Randy, let me ask you this thing. How do you feel when people kind of like casually say, or ask like, you know, perhaps well-intentioned in like a service for Jesus to like be with us or to come walk amongst us. Yeah. How does that language strike you? Yeah. I mean, in a certain sense, um, it's a legitimate question or it's a legitimate request, but it, it sort of confuses the, um, the way that the Trinity works at extra or towards the outside right. or towards creation and the economy of, of salvation. So the way that the Bible talks about this, and, and it's best when you're talking about these to stick with sort of the revealed words of Scripture, is the Spirit is present among us, and the Father and Son are present in the Spirit. Right. So so it, it wouldn't be true to say that the Father is not present personally in our midst. But as far as the way that the Scripture wants us to think about that, the Father and the Son are present in our midst, and they dwell in us by the Spirit. And the way we the way we kind of get our heads around that is that there's a, a maxim in the the early church that kind of carries through the Reformation that the external works of the Trinity are not divisible, but that gives us other questions, um, meaning like, well, we say that the Father is the Creator of the universe, we say that the Spirit is the one who sanctifies, or that the Son is our Redeemer. Does that mean that the Spirit is not our Redeemer, or that the the Son is not our Creator? Well, the church formulated something called the doctrine of appropriations. And what that means more or less is that we can take a particular work of God. So say creation, we can take that work and we can say that it terminates on one of the persons, meaning that it's, it's kind of a peculiar work of that person. Not that the others are not, um, not active in that work, but in terms of how we talk about it, we emphasize the father's work in creation or the son's work in redemption or the spirit's work in sanctification. So we can think about it in that sense. And Michael Horton talks about how, you know, this is a common way that people sort of accidentally slide into a, right. a, a modalism in their prayers is they, they start out by praying to the father because they sort of instinctively recognize that that's the historic way of praying. And then all of a sudden it's, Father, thank you for coming to live in our hearts. And Jesus, we pray that you would be present in our midst, um, that you would sanctify us. Well, it wouldn't be wrong to ask Jesus to sanctify us um, on a technical level, but that's, that's, again, that's not really the way that the scripture reveals how the persons work. Right. I agree. That's kind of my thought too. It's just one of those things. It's easy to let the language kind of go a little bit fast and loose. Yep. And while some would probably argue we're just splitting hairs, there's a lot of pastoral and practical 
just benefits that come from being particular, having particular knowledge or under, understanding the various roles, like you said, that was, yeah. that was pretty well done. I hear that kind of language a lot and it's well-intentioned, but I also often wonder if it comes at a disservice because we're not thinking about it in the way that Randy presented it. So right. when we kind of pray those prayers. We're of course asking for the presence of God to be particularly present or for us to be made aware of his particular presence. But that seems to be sometimes to be a disservice to the Holy Spirit, who indwells internally as a manifestation, and then also to the current ministry of Jesus, who himself is standing before the Father. So it just gives us more robust. I think it just makes us kind of uplift our doxology when we take the time to be particular in our understanding of the Trinity. Yeah, and maybe one last thought before we move on is, um, I, I don't remember what episode number it was, but we did that episode on how Jesus isn't a superhero. And um, you said something I thought was really insightful in that episode. And, and you said something along the lines of the son in his incarnation does not leverage or utilize his divinity in order to act as a human. And, and what you kind of meant by that, if I un- was understanding it correctly, is Jesus doesn't um, doesn't use his divinity to walk on water as a human. I mean, that, that sentence right there doesn't even make sense. Right. Instead, what the incarnation is, is it's not the son setting aside his divine nature. It's not even the son no, no longer um, acting according to his divine nature, right? The son, uh, the son was at the same time, but in different senses, a baby in a manger dependent on his mother for everything. And also the one holding his mother's atoms together and keeping them from right. spinning off into nothingness. But... It would not be proper for us to speak of the incarnate son dwelling in our midst, because in order for that to be the case, he would have to be leveraging his divine abilities and divine capacities in order to function in our midst as a human. And that's that's one of the main places that like the Lutherans go wrong with their doctrine of the Lord's Supper, is they want to say that the, the divine nature or, or Christ as the divine son of God makes his human nature something other than human nature. Right. Um, and so we have to be really careful because when we pray in that way or when we when we kind of invite the son to come in or we, we ask Jesus into our hearts and we think about that as like a, a particular work of the, of the God-man, what we're doing is we're not only corrupting, in a sense, our, our doctrine of the incarnation, but we're really confusing our doctrine of the Trinity as well. So it's there's a lot of things that kind of revolve around that. And then one other thing that I, I think plays in directly into Randy's question is we sometimes think about heaven as though it's a purely spiritual realm and, and then postulate some sort of antithesis between the material and the spiritual being present in heaven. And there are some good reasons for us to think and speak that way, but we also have reasons from scripture to think that the material and the spiritual are not 100% at odds with each other. Right. Right. Enoch, presumably, and Elijah explicitly are carried up into heaven in in bodily form. You know, there's no indication that like when the whirlwind and the, the chariot took Elijah up that all of a sudden like his body fell back down to the ground. We're not talking about some sort of like Gnostic um, escapism from the body. And so at least on some level, we have to acknowledge that it's possible for a, uh, a physical human person to be in heaven. I mean, unless, unless we want to theorize some entirely hypothetical other place besides earth or besides the material created universe that Enoch and Elijah are 
all by themselves. Um, and then Jesus is there now too. But the the scriptures speak really clearly of the um, the son being at the right hand of the father. And, and it's speaking of that, not just in metaphorical terms, but in, in literal proximal terms, that the son is really physically in the presence of the father in a per- peculiar way. Um, so, so we have to be careful, you know, sometimes, sometimes we um, kind of paint ourselves into weird theological corners by making mistakes in other areas of theology that don't that don't help us and and they they aren't biblical. So it reminds me like RC Sproul talks about how God can't die because that would mean God ceases to exist and and that that's incoherent. Well, nobody de- nobody defines death as the cessation of existence when we're talking about humans. So because he sort of falls into that trap of of misdefining death he ends up making a mistake in the way he articulates his doctrine of the hypostatic union. And I think this could be something similar to that, where if we hold too firmly to the idea that heaven is purely a spiritual realm that is antithetical to anything physical, um, we end up having to twist our, our hypostatic union around to compensate for that. But there isn't really any biblical reason for us to think that this, the realm of the spirit and the realm of the flesh are are absolutely diametrically incoherent with each other. Right. There's definitely no reason from the biblical text to make that assumption. That's something probably we do, like you said, to reconcile right. our lack of ability to really understand. We're pushing against the upper bounds of our ability to logically understand what it means. Right. Exactly. Next voicemail. Let's do it. Here we go. Hey, guys. Um, it's Josh here. I'm calling from New Zealand which so I think it's safe to say that I might be one of the furthest listeners of the Reformed Brotherhood. Um, just wanted to say that the podcast has been really edifying for me. I didn't grow up in a Reformed background, and this podcast has really introduced me to Reformed theology. And In fact, I'm actually studying the Westminster Confession of Faith as a result of that, so thank you so much for... Yeah, just the work that you put out. Um, I want to ask a question that's related to your episode on apostasy with Derek Webb. So, one of the things that was brought up was that ultimately it isn't our intellect or our our understanding of these theological topics, but ultimately it is the work of the Spirit which produces real fruit. And I think as a consequence of that, you were saying how um, no one can really know if that fruit is present. And I, I'm not sure if I'm getting understanding that correctly because I'm not sure how that would reconcile with um, the perseverance of the saints. So my question is kind of, um, as you encourage others, um, how do you reconcile between encouraging them of um, the finality and complete completeness of Christ's sacrifice, but at the same time... Um, keep helping um, warning people about um, having real fruit in their lives. So I, I think I was a bit, yeah, just some clarification of that would be helpful. Thanks. All right. My brother, Josh, calling all the way from New Zealand. I know. That's amazing. So let me say this. That is not what I expected a New Zealand accent to sound like. <laughs> is that what you thought a New Zealand accent sounded no, like? So, so Josh said he actually sent us a clip of this via uh, email, and he said he's originally born in Singapore. 
Okay, that makes a little more sense. In New Zealand. So he said he's got this wonderful kind of amalgamation of two things. Yeah. Now, everything I know about New Zealand, I've learned from watching Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And in my mind, and this is probably way off and I'm probably really offending Josh. In my mind, New Zealand is almost like a sort of like a a greener version of Australia, (laughs) which apparently it's not. Where did you get that from? Because like geographically, they're kind of in like the same part of the world. Like it's in that sort of Oceania area. I feel like it's a place where people are living the dream. Yeah. Everybody I've always interacted with from New Zealand is always super nice. It just seems like it's like the, the second garden. Yeah, that's true. Although Mor- like that. Mordor is also in New Zealand, so oh, that's that's factually correct. Or it, or it was. I suppose it's not anymore because it it's been destroyed. Ground. Yeah, yeah. Real quick, so, do you think that's related to Korra's rebellion? That scene from Lord <laughs> of the Rings. We could make some pretty strong comparisons there if we wanted to. Heath, Heath, and Jeremy, I need you guys to get on that right now. Okay, yeah. your next series, Nerd Gospel Podcast, is making biblical comparisons between Lord of the Rings and biblical stories. The challenge has been issued. It has. So So, this episode that Josh is referencing, actually, it got a lot of attention, mainly just because we were having an open dialogue about the interview that Derek Webb gave. And of course, this was a touch point for all kinds of great conversation. And so he is asking, because at one point, this may have been not quite as clear as we wanted, at least from me. Yeah, We seem to claim that no one can really know if the fruit is present. So I like his question about how do we balance the finality and completeness of Christ's sacrifice with a stern warning to look for real spiritual fruit? Yeah. And I think this goes back a little bit too to our Lordship Salvation episode, where towards the end of the episode, um, and I'll, I'll take the majority ownership for this, Jesse and I got on a little bit on, on different pages in terms of the way we were speaking. But after we talked about it off the air, we were on exactly the same page. And the point that I was trying to make um, in that episode and, and some of the stuff we were talking about in the apostasy episode is that um, our fruit is itself somewhat subjective. Right. But then on top of that, our understanding of our fruit is necessarily subjective. So a, a, an, a reprobate uh, individual or a person who is prior to uh, an elect individual prior to um, justification and, and redemption, adoption, all that stuff, they can still do things that look like good fruit, right? A, a reprobate sinner can help an old lady across the street or can jump in front of a, a push a little girl out of the way of a car and be killed in in action of saving that little girl. Um, so we have to be cautious not to look at what appears to be outwardly good fruit exclusively. That doesn't mean that we can't look at outwardly good fruit if it is combined with a do- an orthodox doctrinal profession and right. a genuine trust in Christ. So those three pieces have to be in place in order for us to assess fruit as being good fruit. So it's true in a sense that you cannot know with 100% certainty if the fruit that you're producing is good fruit if you're looking at only that fruit, only the the outward good works. But if you're looking at um, yourself, if you're examining yourself, which we have a little bit of standing to sort of fruit check other people, but the Bible's primary way of um, of doing that is checking outward good works, checking doctrinal clarity and profession. Right. The most the most explicit statement in uh, that uses this discussion of good fruit 
is in relation to the doctrinal clarity of false prophets, and it's coming off of Christ's lips. So good fruit is not just our good works. It's also our doctrinal profession. It's also our own internal change in our life, the internal holiness that God cultivates in us, and our profession of faith. And then also, do you trust in the promise of Christ? If, right. if you're trusting in the promise of Christ, that in itself is really good fruit. I would say that's the best fruit. Um, no one else can see that, but you can see to some at least limited degree, you can see your own heart and know if you're actually trusting in the promise of Christ. Right. It's one of the main concerns of the New Testament to distinguish true and false assurance or like Mm -hmm. that sense that there is real fruit. So in Romans 8, Paul's warning that whatever claims a man might make, if he does not have the spirit, he does not belong to Christ. And in the teaching of Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, like you said, we find warnings against the possibility of appearing on the last day with some kind of assurance that will be swept away. So for me, it's exactly as you said, we cannot take one or other of these kind of proofs, so to speak, in isolation. So assurance like salvation is double-sided, not synergistic, but double-sided. It's not merely a matter of men knowing Christ, but Christ knowing men in a special and intimate sense. So how we discern that in one another is difficult, which is why I believe Christ gives us the parable of the tares and the wheat, which he basically makes it known that this is going to be a problem for people to decipher, and it's not your job to decipher it in its entirety. Right. That'll be left up to Christ. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, you're right in that we ought to, I like the fruit check term. Where did that come from? I don't know. I didn't make it up. I'm just not sure what that. It sounds like, so when you said that, what, what rang in my mind was, did you ever go to like a public swimming place, like generally on like a lake where there was like a lifeguard and you had to like, you're a camp or something. This is getting like really oddly specific now in my head. Oh yeah, I know where you're going. Okay. I think and I the lifeguard going. would yell at like buddy check. Yeah. And you have to like be within arm's reach of like the person who's supposed to be watching you swim. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. This kind of fell flat. I thought you'd be more excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, there's, there's multiple elements to it. So I, I think fruit checking in others. So like me looking at another person's fruit and making an assessment about them. That is something we need to, we need to um, be extremely careful of. We need right, to be exactly. very, very careful of. And and I'm not a hundred percent convinced that the Bible ever makes a case for one individual believer um, making a decision about another person who claims to be of the faith, making a decision about their status as a Christian. That, I agree with that's, that. that's what the Bible would call the power of the keys. And that's for the church. So, you know, I, I, I'm sure there are people listening who are like, but wait a second, you've, you've said that Tullian Javidian is not a Christian. Well, I said that only after he was excommunicated. Well, he was never formally excommunicated, but after he essentially excommunicated himself by fleeing from the discipline of the church, after the church said, and when I, the church being capital C, the, the, the gathered leadership of elected elders, of, of ordained elders, determined this person is no longer a Christian in good standing. That's the, that's the point. That's the end point of church discipline. Mark Driscoll is the same. Before he was, um, before he left Mars Hill, I would never have said he's not a Christian. I might have said I have some serious concerns about his salvation. I have some serious concerns about the fruit that's coming in his life. But after those people fled from church discipline, and now we are command not only allowed to say that they're not Christians, we're commanded by Jesus to think of them as non-Christians and to treat them as non-Christians. That's where the thing switches for me. But in terms of us checking our own fruit, we are constantly called to be examining ourselves. Right. And, and that's that's a difficult thing because a lot of times we think, well, if I can't look at someone else 
and assess their fruit, then I also shouldn't look at my own. But that's just not a, not really like an argument that follows. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, part of this is trying to understand, I guess, in a way, what assurance means, what it means to be saved uh, by God. And in my own life, I ever try to give somebody, somebody to ask me like, well, how do you know you have fruit or how do you know that you've been saved? I can think of a couple things. And a lot of them have to deal with what you kind of already said, which was, it's not just about the outer workings, but it's about the inner attitude that is the prior intent that feeds the content of those behaviors. Because like you said, people can do good things for lots of reasons, uh, right. some of them self-serving. And it's no good essentially trying to grow your own fruit out of like your own just willfulness when there is not the proper attitude behind it. So first, I think proper fruit is accompanied by satisfaction with God's way of salvation, which is huge because the humbling of our sinful hearts before a crucified Savior, when that becomes precious in our own experience— that, I think, is where we start to see that God is doing some work in our life. Yeah. Where, because before, it simply would have revealed a root of bitterness and antagonism against the wisdom and the grace of God. So that's a huge, and that, but that's internal, and that's very difficult for somebody might be able to explain, use those words, and still really be lacking that kind of precious experience. So yeah. that, to your point, it's hard to gauge. I think it also brings a sense of security, which enlivens the things that we want to do. So for instance, the great thing, well, one of the great things, about Christianity is just that unlike any other major world religion, which essentially says your performance is what will determine your eternal destiny. Here we have Jesus basically click dragging and dropping our judgment from the future into the present by his death so that we might be reconciled to him like Romans 5 style. Yeah. And now we're able to go forward in freedom and to live out all our duties underneath that freedom, that release from that kind of burden. That's an amazing thing. So coming to that place and understanding that that is the actual truth of the matter, that it's not about your performance, I think is also uh, kind of leads us into understanding whether or not we have fruit. I, I think lastly, for me, it produces, I guess I would call it like a holy boldness in our lives, yeah. which is the stamp of those who reign in life by Christ Jesus and begun to appreciate what it is to be more than a conqueror of sin through him. So that's, I think, where it goes from perhaps internal to external. I mean, there's no doubt that probably you and I know Christians that we would say, man, God is growing some amazing fruit in their life because I see their outwork and I see the change in how they handle situations. Yeah. And one of the biggest things for me personally, I think, has been in all of our lives, we're going to experience circumstances that will have cause waves of emotion. And the question is, how high are the amplitudes of those waves? And in, through Jesus Christ, throughout all of our lives, the waves, the amplitudes, I think, should be getting smaller and smaller. And one of the ways we know that that fruit is being borne out is, I think, in our security and stability in Christ and through the sovereignty of God and his providence, coming under those things, feeling the weight of God's hand on us even during difficult times, knowing that that's for our good and for his glory. Yeah. So those are, those are small things, though, and it's not our place to necessarily go out and try to find in our neighbor all those things, especially if we're not willing to look at them in our own lives. Yeah, and, and just to kind of wrap this up— um, you know, Josh mentioned, and this is awesome, but he mentioned that um, he's been studying the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it, it is so humbling to hear that our podcast has pointed someone towards good theology. So that's that's very humbling, and we're appreciative of that. 
uh, encouragement. But chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is specifically about the assurance of salvation. Um, So uh, it's a little bit long, but I want to read all four um, articles just because I think this is one of those chapters you can't really pull one out because they're all so integrated. So article one says, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Um, Article 2 says, This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promise of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. Article 3. This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given of God, he may without extraordinary revelation in the right use of ordinary means attain thereunto. And therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruit of this assurance. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. And then Article 4. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence and persevering of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit this assurance may in due time be revived, and by which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. So just to, to break that all down, the first the first article says we we can even though people may give themselves false hopes and false presumption of salvation, it's not the case that Christians may not have assurance. And it says we can love him in sincerity and endeavoring to walk in good conscience, have assurance. And I think that's key is that the, you know, I had a friend one time who asked me like, well, how do I have assurance? And, and it wasn't to trying to look to our election because you, you can't see your election. Right. You're never going to be able to say, I'm, I'm confident that I'm elect and therefore I have assurance because then all someone has to do is say, well, how do you know you're elect? Well, I guess I don't. Well, then how do you have assurance? Well, I guess I don't. The answer is also not to look at a future salvation because you can never know if you're going to fall away or not. The answer is to currently trust Christ and to walk in good conscience before him and to love him in sincerity. If you every moment of every day commit yourself to doing that, right? As Peter says, second, second Peter 2-ish, he says, if you have these qualities and they are increasing, they will keep you from falling. But these qualities are not what give you your salvation. They're not even what give you your assurance. 
They are there because you are saved. And right, so they exactly. point to the reality that your assurance is in rather than establishing your assurance. There's something self-reinforcing there. And I'm glad you brought that up because this is why when we focus on sharing the gospel and we turn it into some kind of decisional regeneration, why that is so harmful. Yeah. Because when God and man cooperate in salvation, it becomes important, probably necessary to appeal to human emotion and desires yes. to secure human response to what the Bible tells us is God's work. So the risk that we take in telling people that they've been saved after they have like marked a card or raised their hand is that we know only that they've made some type of decision, but that, that decision may be sincere and well-intentioned, but does not necessarily indicate that the spirit has regenerated the person. Yeah. So th- this is all like wrapped up for me because he just spoke about perseverance of the saints and that just comports so well with what you just read that we trust in God for these things. And that uh, in fact, the trusting themselves, the sincere trust is in fact, in some way, an indication that God has, in fact, given us the assurance that the trust is real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and this next question, it looks like, is um, pretty connected to this. So why don't we go ahead and play oh, yeah, that this one? This is great. Here we go. Hey guys, um, my name is Dan. I'm calling from from Peoria, Arizona. Um, first of all, I love you guys. Love your show, your podcast. Appreciate it. Um, what you do. Uh, my question is about John Piper. I don't know if you guys could help me out with this recent situation where he's uh, basically uh, claiming that in both his writing and in a follow-up sermon, basically you're saved, uh, you're justified by grace alone, but your your final salvation, as he refers to it, your going to heaven is, uh, requires works. Um, he basically says that you're in right standing with God by his grace alone, but to get to heaven requires uh, will you be judged on your works. And to me, that seems it seems heresy, and I, it seems that uh kind of gets swept under the rug. Not many people are talking about it. Uh, he's even uh, listed on the next, the next G3 conferences lineup. So just kind of odd. I wonder if you guys could help me understand that better. Maybe he's retracted what he said. Um, or do you think that's not heresy, what he's, what he's claiming? Uh, just wanted to get help me out, guys. Thanks. All right. So Dan brings up, I'm glad Dan brought this up because I have seen this kind of circulating around again. This kind of comes around. It's like a merry-go-round, this particular issue, and especially John's, John Piper's expression of it. Some of it, I think, as we've been talking about, it's been a little bit miscommunication. It's probably not as clear or crisp as it yeah. should be. But uh, what do you think? Um, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so... I have to be honest that I'm frustrated with this, not with the question. Um, It's a legitimate question, but I'm frustrated that this is coming back around. Not because there was necessarily any drastic um, resolution. Uh, This was like a hot controversy like seven, eight months ago. Um, But it, it just seems like nothing new has happened really to bring this back to the forefront. So I'm not entirely sure why why these questions are coming back up again, but you're right. Um, and, and if you're seeing it, then, then it's, it's definitely on it's the, the joy of social media. I am seeing it everywhere all of a sudden. Right. Um, so I think that part of the reason it's coming back around is because there's a new podcast, uh, relatively new called the Protestant witness, which is on a, a network called thorn crown network, which is like a new blog. It, some of them used to be associated with, um, the Bible thumbing Wingnet network, but apparently there was some, I don't know, some disagreement and they've splintered off into a new thing. And this podcast is on episode seven and four, I think four out of the five, seven episodes have been 
about John Piper, about this specific issue. Um, and it's by a pastor named uh, Patrick Hines. I want to be respectful because he's an elder in God's church. Um, but I think you're right. In my opinion, in listening to these episodes, listening to him talk about these, I think that he is, um, I don't want to say intentionally, but close to that. I think he is ignoring what Piper is actually saying. Um, if you listen to the episodes, he keeps on kind of like, like repeating phrases that John Piper's never actually said, but saying that this is what Piper is saying. Um, there was one episode that he did where he was listening to a video of John Piper and he hadn't listened to it before. And so he would, he would sometimes say like, see, this is what Piper's saying. And then it, within another minute or two, Piper would contradict that. And he wouldn't acknowledge it. He wouldn't go back and say, oh, man, I guess I made that mistake. So, for example, he would say, Piper is saying you can you can be justified and then lose your justification. And then like five minutes later, Piper said in absolutely unequivocal terms, if you are justified, you are permanently and forever justified. Right. There was no acknowledgement of the fact that Piper said something 100% opposite of what Heinz said Piper said. So I, I don't want to impute false motives to that. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't know Patrick. I haven't spoken with him. I have spoken with a couple of people who are involved with this met, this um, new network and this podcast. And they seem like upstanding guys. I don't think they're intentionally trying to misrepresent anything. But I also want to acknowledge that John Piper has not been as clear as he could have been in some of these conversations. Um, again, I don't know why. I have never spoken with John Piper. But there are ways that this can be explained that are less obscure than what Piper has been saying. Um, some of this has to do with, I think, probably an intern at Desiring God saw an opportunity to increase his hit count and phrase some things in a particularly contentious right. way. Um, but Piper is also a bit of a controversialist too himself. So so it's possible that Piper has been phrasing some of these things in intentionally kind of um, controversial ways. I mean, even like um, Christian hedonism, he's acknowledged he calls it Christian hedonism because that's controversial and gets a rise out of people and then makes it a topic. Um, when you're talking about the salvation of uh, the doctrine of salvation, sola fide, um, and I'll say salvation, sola fide, um, you probably shouldn't be intentionally controversial. I'll just right. say it that I way. I agree. It's unnecessary. So what I think Piper is trying to say is that salvation, you know, salvation, not just justification, right? We all acknowledge that salvation is broader than just the forensic declaration of righteousness and the imputation of Christ's sin. Everything else comes about as a result of that or, or subsequent to that. But that's not the only thing that happens in our salvation. Right, the Westminster Confession, broadly speaking, um, things that happen in this life, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification. Sanctification gets broken down into mortification and vivic. I mean, there's all sorts of steps in the Ordo Salutis. What Piper is saying is that although we are justified by faith alone, when we enter into heaven, when we reach the consummate point of our salvation— He's calling this final salvation, which I think is a singularly unhelpful term. He is saying that when we reach the consummation of salvation, that the life that we lived between justification and that consummation of salvation, that life will match the salvation that we, right. are, we are reaching. And the way that that matches that salvation is by the fact that our life has increased in holiness and good works. Right. So I want to read something real quick. And this was written in 1989. And both sides of the conversation have acknowledged that John Piper is not changing anything about what he's teaching. 
So it's not as though he wrote something orthodox then and now is teaching something unorthodox. That's not what the other side is saying. They're saying this has been consistent all along. Um, let me find it here. All right, so it's about halfway down the article. We'll link it in the show notes. It's an article called Final Judgment According to Works. And about halfway down the article, he says, quote, according to works means God will take the fruit of the spirit and the good deeds by which we let the light of our faith shine, and he will accept them as corroborating evidence of our faith. His sentence of acquittal will not be because we are not guilty. It will because be because Christ bore our guilt. The place of our works at the judgment is to serve as corroborating evidence that we did indeed put our trust in Christ. Right. Therefore, when we are acquitted and welcomed into the kingdom, it will not be earned by works, but it will be according to works. There will be an accord or an agreement between our salvation and our works. So I think that that is really clear. And if he had said that in the preface to Tom Schreiner's book, or if he had said that in the sermon where he tried to clarify, or if he had said that in any of the the articles that have come out since then, we would be in a totally different place. The problem is that the people like Patrick Hines, like um, R. Scott Clark, and I love R. Scott Clark. He and, he and I have had long discussions about this, and we still disagree with each other, but there's no hard feelings about that. Um, if they were to look at this and interpret the current words in light of what he said 30 years ago, there wouldn't be a controversy. However, what's happening is rather than looking at what he wrote 30 years ago that's clear and interpreting the more obscure, controversial things in light of that, they're doing it the other direction. So what they're saying now is like, well, yeah, that's what he said 30 years ago, but that can't be what he, he must have meant something else. Well, I don't see a reason to think that he meant something else. Um, and since everybody agrees he's been teaching the same thing for 30 years, then it's just a matter of which do we let be the hermeneutical guide, the clear context, the clear thing that was written outside of the context of a controversy 30 years ago, or the controversial thing that he's writing now, which probably was designed to help sell books because right. it was a preface to a book. That's the point of the preface is to be sort of a taste of something. And, and it's a, it's kind of a sensationalized taste. It's the really tasty appetizer before a kind of a boring meal. So I think, I don't think we should call Piper a heretic. I don't think he's preaching a false gospel. I would be really interested to hear, and I've never gotten a straight answer out of this, whether or not people like Patrick Hines, who are saying Piper is teaching a false gospel, are willing to say John Piper is therefore not saved and he is cursed. That's the standard Paul sets. The answer I usually get is, well, his gospel is cursed. Well, that's not what Paul says. Paul says the person who teaches a false gospel, he is accursed. Not the gospel itself. Not the false gospel, not the teaching. The person is accursed. So right. there's a little bit of inconsistency there. I don't think sometimes I don't think people like um, like Patrick Hines or even our Scott Clark are willing to take that step that they're what they're saying actually demands, um, which to me means they, they don't really think it's as serious as they're presenting it to be. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? We can kind of shift to another aspect of this question. If you, the want. language does seem evocative. And if anybody's not really familiar with what we're talking about, you can go to desiringgod.org and search for how do we get to heaven? That's the, right. you're going to get the sermon and kind of an accompanying article. And probably the lightning rod for this is encapsulated in this quote, quote, you don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone, end quote. And that, like you said, taken out of context, 
I think can be used as fodder for all kinds of really strange directions in trying to understand what he means. It It's not clear, but I don't know that it was meant to be clear, like you're saying. I think it was a little bit yeah. meant to drive attention and to be somewhat bristling for people so that they push right. against it. I, I'm with you on this. I mean, I think what he's saying, I, honestly, I think what Piper really means at the end of the day, consistent with his other teaching and his other writing, is in justification, faith receives the finished work of Christ performed outside of us and counted as ours. It's imputed to us. In sanctification, faith receives an ongoing power of Christ that works inside of us for practical holiness. And then at the last judgment, whether you want to call it final salvation or not, faith is confirmed by the sanctifying fruit it has borne. And we are saved through that fruit and by that, sorry, saved through that fruit and that faith. So that's why I think Paul says in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.13, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by spirit and belief in the truth. So I don't have a beef here per se with Piper. I think it's just not that clear. And unfortunately, this article is still out there and it's not made any effort really to kind of clarify that position or even link to some other sources. Yeah. So unfortunately, if people kind of go out there and grab this, it gets more sensationalized and it kind of builds this kind of weird snowball effect. Yeah. And I want to acknowledge it's certainly possible that um, we're wrong and that Patrick Hines is right and that John Piper is teaching everything they say he is. I don't think that's the case. Um, And and I think there's good reasons, even if you just listen to Patrick Hines um, about this, that demonstrate he's not really trying to assess Piper's argument carefully. So the, the issues I noted earlier, but then also there are lots of times where he will talk about Piper's doctrine of final justification, but Piper has been painfully, the one thing he's been really clear on is that he's not talking about justification at the end. So Heinz will say, well, when he says final salvation, he means final justification. And I'm going, he has said explicitly that he doesn't mean final justification. Right, exactly. He's actually formulating this in some senses in response to people who articulate a final justification. Um, people like the Federal Vision, people like the new, you know, not the Federal Vision, those, those things came along sort of later than Paul, than Piper was originally writing this stuff. But he's articulating a view in contrast to people who want to assert a provisional initial justification and a final confirmation of justification that can be remitted or can be failed to achieve. He's not saying that at all. So, and and the other figure that for whatever reason, hasn't really been coming around in this controversy. I think it's because he's in South Africa and hasn't been blogging about it and hasn't been contributing to the conversation is Mark Jones, right? In the, when this controversy sparked up last year, Mark Jones came to Piper's defense and tried to put, and I think succeeded, but he put some historical sourcing, some historical classic reformed Orthodox sourcing that uses the same language or the same kind of language around this. Now, I think Piper has some issues in his soteriology because he is not a covenant theologian. Right? He denies a covenant of works. He thinks the covenant of works is essentially Roman Catholicism prior to the fall, which is not what it is. And so there are some issues in, in Piper's covenant theology or lack of covenant theology that makes, makes some problems that flow into this. But Mark Jones, for the most part, as far as I can tell, is a solid, classic, orthodox, covenant of works, covenant of grace guy. He doesn't have any issues. He doesn't have any disagreements there. And what Jones is trying to say is this, he says is the same thing as Piper. I actually contacted him the other day um, and, and I, I wrote a summary to him to see if that if this was an accurate summary and he, he confirmed that it was. So I'm just going to read this. 
So this is me summarizing Jones's view. He says, a person is united to, I say, a person is united to Christ through faith by the spirit in their effectual calling. In this union, they are justified once for all, and this can never be undone. This justification is the forensic basis for their standing before God, both now and after death. Good works will necessarily accompany this justification, and this, and if they are utterly absent, justification never occurred. Uh, in the final judgment, the only basis for God's forensic declaration for our righteousness is the imputed righteousness of Christ. However, our growth in holiness is corroborating evidence of our faith, justification, and union, so we can say that God publicly vindicates our salvation on the basis of this corroborating evidence. And to that, he says, that is fair. So, so <laughs> what, Pi- what, what Piper great. and Jones is saying, and, and this is, I actually disagree with them on some levels on this, but what they're saying is that in the final judgment, this is not a private conversation between God and, and the person being judged. Sometimes, you know, we think like, well, when I get to heaven, God's going to show me the video of my life. And we, we picture this in the, like, we're in this, this private room with God and we're watching this video and then he tells us his decision. But the way that the Bible presents it is all people are standing before God and he is declaring judgment on them. And so this public judgment that's happening, this public declaration of either our guilt or our innocence, this public verdict that he's rendering, he's not rendering on the basis of our good works. His decision is not driven by our good works. Right. But when he, when he um, declares the verdict, he will also declare the good works that we've accomplished as evidence to justify. We can even think of this not justify as in like make us just. It's justifying his decision. It's justifying his declaration that we are just. So he looks at us and says just, and then imagine like some Pope standing in the background somehow going, well, that's just a legal fiction. And God goes, no, here's all the good works that I produced. Here's all the, the good works that I produced in their life as a result of my spirit dwelling in them, as a result of my son dying and serving their punishment. So he's not vindicating us he's vindicating his own righteousness by establishing and proving that we are changed people by pointing at the good works he has wrought in us that is what mark jones and piper are saying and that's just classic reformed orthodoxy there's nothing objectionable about that and patrick hines in his arguments against piper articulates that view and says if that's what piper's saying then i've got no objection to it well that is what piper's saying but there's there's this like allergy to the way he's saying it that it seems like people are refusing to even dig into right. his work and understand it for on its own terms. Yeah, I think the onus is on those who are coming against him saying that this is heretical because that they didn't examine the body of his work and his previous teaching in the light of this particular one little article and one small kind of clip from this particular sermon. Right. Then that's really where the problem is. I mean, we have we're on good grounds to look through the scriptures and see that's exactly how God handles his children in the sense that we just overcomplicate this. It's it goes back to faith alone, but faith that is not alone. Yeah. And so even when we see in the book of Job, God says, you know, when he's conversing with Satan, like, have you seen my servant Job? Have you right. seen what his life is like? As exactly. if like to say, here's some evidence that he is truly my child, truly changed, truly regenerated and transformed. Just look at the way that he lives. So right. there's nothing wrong with saying that, but what happens is sometimes these articles for shock value or whatever reason, tend to fall on one side or the other too much. And then we all get bent out of shape and say, this person doesn't really 
understand things and ugh. yeah and this this is the other element of this and this is this seems to be where mark jones places his primary emphasis in this is um if you imagine salvation the, the whole order of, of salvation as a road to a destination right we're gonna we're gonna get all emergent here and talk about the journey there's there's a road to the destination and the destination is the beatific vision or the resurrection the present the glorious gracious presence of the lord right positive relationship with god in the final judgment well the first thing you have to do is gain the right to be on that road right you have to you have to earn the right to be on that road so this is a toll road and in order to get on that road you have to pay the toll now in the covenant of works the toll would be perfect perpetual obedience, but we can't pay that toll. And so Jesus pays the toll for us. And so right. Jesus pays the toll and the gate goes up and we step onto the road. But, but Jesus doesn't necessarily say, all right, now hop on my back. I'm going to walk this road for you. Jesus doesn't do good works on our behalf. He does good works on our behalf. Don't mistake me. His good works are our good works. But we still have to walk the road of holiness and we can't get to the destination without walking the road of holiness. Now, that doesn't mean that we earn the right to holiness by walking on that road. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that we have we, we paid the toll gate by walking on that road. It just means that there's only one road to walk on once you've entered that toll gate. There's only one road and that road is the fruit of the spirit, the increase of holiness. It's conformity to the image of Christ. So to deny what, what Piper, and especially what Jones is saying, to deny that we have to walk on the road that Christ has set in front of us in order to reach the destination that Christ has purchased entry into for us is to essentially disregard the, the, the call to holiness in the life of a Christian. Now that's not what they're doing. They're, they're not trying to do that at all. They're 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 affirming all the reformed essentials on the necessity of works in the Christian life as evidence and, and antecedent um and and consequent conditions for holiness and for righteousness. But they're just denying this reality, which they actually affirm because of the way Piper said it. I mean, that's my take on the debate. I, I don't know about you. That's basically mine as well. <laughs> okay. Let's, I think we crushed this one. <laughs> we did. I, I, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that our little podcast is going to settle it. But no, this is it. The definitive answer to this question okay. once and for all. Somebody send this to Patrick Hines. I'm sure that'll settle the question. <laughs> yeah, please. That would be fantastic. I, I know for a fact that at least two people who run hit, who work on his show listen to the show. So I'm sure that it will make it onto his uh, onto his desk somehow. We we love our brothers and sisters that are arguing the opposite view or the other view, but I just I just do not see it. I don't see it. I've had long conversations with Mark about this. I just don't see this as the heresy that the other side seems to think it is. I'm I'm with you on that. And, and that's not because I agree with him. Right. I'm with you. Let's do one right. more. Let's do one more. All right, here we go. Hey, Tony and Jesse. This is Sean calling from Florida. Um, in the Martianite podcast, you were talking about um, how murder and uh, adultery and things like that will still be um, against God's commands in the uh, eternal state in heaven, um, new heaven, new earth. And uh, I was wondering specifically since um, the Sabbath is what's often picked on, you know, amongst dispensationalists and uh, New Covenant theology. Uh, looking at the Ten Commandments in Exodus, um, that one specifically has the pattern of six days of labor, uh, one day of rest, and I'm wondering if you think that that 
you know, six and one pattern is still something that would be present in uh, the new heavens and new earth, or if that would change in, in any way. So, uh, So I love Sean's question here. I think this is kind of a a fun question because following that Marcionism discussion, we were talking about how the Ten Commandments really have eternal relevance for us still. So his question of, do we think the Sabbath pattern, that six days of labor and one day of rest, will remain in the new heaven and the new earth? Yeah, I do. That that whole pattern will stay, like there'll be six days of labor and one day of rest? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think... You know, we, we have these misconceptions about heaven that, that it's, you know, we're, we're going to be sitting on, on clouds playing harps all the time. And, and some of that comes from the fact that we want to talk about heaven, and rightfully so, as perpetual ongoing worship of God. Uninterrupted, unsullied, um, a pure, perpetual worship of God. The problem with that is that we think of worship of God in this sort of controversial way to say it. We think of that in, in Roman Catholic terms. Right? We think of that in terms of the service of the priests as opposed to the ordinary work of the layperson. But one of the central recoveries of the Reformation was the holiness of ordinary vocation. And so I don't see a reason from Scripture to think that we won't have labor to do in the new kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. I don't see a reason to think that the idea of labor somehow is antithetical to the new heaven and the new earth. And so whatever kinds of labor we have, There's going to be, I think, time set aside for ordinary labor, ordinary God-glorifying worshiping labor, and some sort of devoted, dedicated, non-ordinary labor worship of God, just as it is now and just as it was in the garden. So let me, I got a little bit different perspective on this. This is interesting. So I agree with you. Like there's obviously going to be labor in heaven because that labor was created by God and it was a good thing. And we feel this pull to want to do something productive and creative. So, I mean, we must understand that the fulfillment of the law occurs in the entirety of Jesus' mission, and not all of that has been finished yet. So, he right. completed his work of atonement on the cross, but the work of bringing all things under his feet, that continues. And until that work is finished in the consummation of the new heaven and new earth, unfulfilled elements of the law remain in force. And that's where I think we have the Sabbath today. De- depending on how you honor that, there still is a need to honor it. So, we begin in this life, the eternal Sabbath worshiping, resting on the Lord's day as a testimony to like our eternal rest. I think that's like Heidelberg catechism question 103 or something like right. that. So I think it's important that we, we recommend or we, we kind of come to this term of understanding that the Sabbath was not instituted for man in Genesis though. Like it's instituted officially in Exodus in the law of Moses. And in Genesis 2, there's no Sabbath law given there for Adam. Nothing is actually said about this day or that day being a day of worship. It doesn't prescribe anything for anyone. It's actually isolated completely to God. So God completed his creation, and then, of course, he was satisfied with it, and he rested, which is basically just him ceasing from work, not that he needed to actually take a nap, of course. So as I'm examining the scriptures, I see God designed the seventh day as a special memorial to his creation and its original perfection. And that day is to be elevated above all other days as a memorial to remember that the glory of God in his perfection for the creation. So I wonder if it will be necessary in this exact same pattern because it still is a type. And I agree with you that there is going to be time set aside for worship, I think, dedicated worship. I just wonder if the Sabbath is in the six and one is going to be kind of outmooted because it will be totally redefined in a totally different paradigm. So, I mean, the first time the Sabbath is mentioned in some significant way is in Exodus 16, 
when God feeds the people manna from heaven as they wander in the wilderness. And the manna comes every day except for the Sabbath day. And the day before they get enough for that day so they don't have to work on that day. So it's all pointing to me for like, there's a sign. On every Sabbath, the Israelites are reminded of a perfect creation, a paradise of God dominated by his righteousness, which they had forfeited, we had forfeited by sin. And it can only be regained again by righteousness. So they were to consider the importance of the seventh day of examining their own lives, looking at how they were measuring up against the law of God and recognizing that sin was the objective and bringing them to repentance. So I don't disagree. I'm just wondering, so you still feel pretty strongly that there would be like this regular rhythm or that the rhythm is going to be so totally redefined that we won't, we're not going to need like the six in one. Yeah. So I, I could be convinced that the, the, the pattern of the Sabbath um, might be different. I'm uh, as I've become more and more reformed, and um, as I've studied systematic theology more and more, I'm becoming less and less apt to engage in speculative theology. And so for me, um, you know, the the Sabbath. So back up to where we were with uh, the um, with the discussion about Marcionism. We established that the Ten Commandments were the eternal contemporary because they are a outflow of the very nature of God. For sure. So we're all on the same page there. So the the moral imperative of the Sabbath will was a reality from the very moment of creation, and it will continue on for perpetuity into forever. Now, the question becomes, is the specific... Um, circumstances, if we want to call that, the specific circumstances of the Sabbath, are those circumstantial, right? On some level, we know they are because they change in the new covenant. Right. And the reason for them changes even within the old covenant, right? Prior to the Exodus, um, I shouldn't say prior to the Exodus, but the initial giving of the Ten Commandments, the reason for the sixth, the seventh day Sabbath was because God rested on the seventh day. But then when Moses re-delivers the, the law in Deuteronomy, the reason for the se- seventh day Sabbath is because you were slaves and now you get to celebrate your rest that God has given you. And that movement is the, the very movement you're talking about. Right. It's a movement of celebrating the perfect creation and then celebrating the deliverance of God, pointing to Christ. And now we celebrate Christ entering into his eternal Sabbath by celebrating on the day that he did that on the seventh day or the first day of the resurrection. And we look forward now to our entering in his wake into that eternal Sabbath. So I don't see a biblical reason to think that the pattern of six days, one day, six days, one day, which was consistent throughout the entire biblical revelation. I don't see a reason to think that that pattern changes. Could it? Sure but I just don't see a reason to think that it does. And absent some sort of reason to think it does, my perspective, my take is to assume that it probably doesn't. So I think that Adam celebrated the the Sabbath in the garden. I don't, I don't think he was there for very long. And it's actually funny because most, um, most of the early church fathers believed that Adam fell on the first Sabbath in the garden. And they, they use that as sort of like an anti-type, an anti-typology right. of the resurrection. That Adam brought death on the seventh day, and then Christ brought life on the, on the first day. Um, but I, I, I don't see a reason to think he didn't celebrate it. Um, the celebration of the Sabbath is not, not instituted in the law. 
it's instituted prior to the giving of the law. So there's this consistent six-in-one pattern throughout all of the biblical revelation um, that I just don't see a reason to think is going to change. I, yeah, I could be convinced otherwise. It could be that. Yeah. Like you said, it is it is speculative. And when I try to consider what it would be like for Adam to celebrate the Sabbath, we have to be careful about how we're defining what it is that he's celebrating, of course, because there's no real rest for him in a sense. Uh, the labor was was awesome, I guess. Like, I, I can't imagine, like, going to work and everything being awesome. Like, doing good work and being able to relish it and be satisfied in it without any kind of hardship. You know, like, the, most people enjoy, like, 20% of the work that they get to do and 80% is the stuff you don't enjoy as much. Yeah. So, for Adam, for that to be 100%, it's just an interesting paradigm to think about. And I think it's a good question. I think that helps us, again, to kind of crystallize what does the Sabbath mean? This should drive us into questioning how do we obey that fourth commandment now? Because it does require some kind of obedience on our part. And it's got to be a practical and not a passive obedience. We've actually got to invest ourselves, so to speak, in making that a day of rest. And in our culture, that might mean something like just cutting off all of your social media so that you can spend more time with your family. It Mm -hmm. certainly means being in the Lord's house, going to church and being with the body of believers. But it's got to be much more than that because it's clear throughout Scripture, as you said, that and, and some for some people that is not particularly relaxing, especially if you serve in the church. So they're getting back to this idea of really honoring, making it a memorial to God in both what you spoke about in terms of being freed, both in a typological sense from sin and death, and also as a memorial to God's perfect creation, which yeah. we're hopefully all longing for. Like the rest that we get on the weekend, especially on the Lord's Day, is just a small taste of that eschatological rest, the full rest of body and soul and satisfaction that we long for in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. One last thought, just kind of ducktailing off your your kind of question of what would rest in the garden have been like. I don't remember who it was that I was reading, so this is not particularly helpful. But one one reader, I, I think it was a, a patristic source, was arguing that... Um, and it's interesting because you don't get a lot of patristic sources arguing about the Sabbath, but was arguing that a few things. The first was that the reason that Satan came into the garden on the t- when he did was because it was on the Sabbath when they were not about their work. So every other day of the week, Adam was weeding, was was tending the garden. He was guarding it. And then on the Sabbath, he rested from that work. And so the serpent slipped in when Adam was resting from his work. And they also argued, you know, we have this tendency to think of the phrase that the the Lord walked with him in the cool of the day. We think that that's like an ongoing reality. But this source was arguing that the Lord regular would have been regularly coming to the garden only on the Sabbath. And so this was the special day of a direct communion with God that would not be celebrated at other times. And so those things put together for that writer was why was why the argument came together that the, the fall happened on the Sabbath. Um, and and I, again, that's all speculation. There's no biblical information that gives us that. But for me, it seems to fit. So that's just an interesting way to think about what, what it might have been like in the garden was that when the Lord was coming in in the cool of the day or in the spirit of the day, that that was his special union with Adam on the Sabbath, the way that we have a special union or a special fellowship with God on on our Sabbath as well. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting way to look at it, actually. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I don't remember who it is, so that's not particularly helpful. If you you as a listener come across that or you know where it is, please email me. I'll get it in the show notes. I just don't. It was somewhere in seminary, and I wasn't wasn't as clued in to arguments about the Sabbath as I am now. Um, which is a, a kind of a particularly reformed thing to do is to argue about the Sabbath. For um, sure. 
But um, I remember reading it though. So good theology stuff, gals, theology gals, um, who also used to be part of the Bible thumping wingnut uh, network and is no longer. Um, they just did a really good episode on the Sabbath, so you should check that out. Awesome, sounds great. This has been another great and fun conversation for me. I love that we're getting all kinds of voices from all over the world, quite literally, I know. to join in in this discussion. So please keep calling us, leaving voicemails. It's wonderful that in this day and age, we can be united with so many brothers and sisters all across the globe because of things like the internet and voicemail. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of voicemail, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 607-444-2767. Bros. Or you can email us your audio clips like Josh did uh, to info at reformbrotherhood.com. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Man, we're recording on a Monday. It's throwing me all off. We've talked ourselves out on this one. We have. I need to go take a nap. Well, in that case, until next time, Tony, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh